KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Amy Willens will report on the news from the streets of Port-au-Prince in Haiti, and Anatole Levin has just returned from three weeks in Ukraine. We'll have his comments and analysis on the war there later in the show. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, I'm still thinking about Tucker Carlson uh, being fired by Fox. I looked up his audience, 3.5 million. Then I looked up the audience of Rush Limbaugh, 14 million. AM radio seems to have been a much more powerful force for uh, right-wing talkers than uh, than cable TV. Well, Limbaugh has two advantages in this. One, he was on for three hours, not one. And two, uh, a hell of a lot of his listeners were people who turned on the radio while driving, truckers and others, you know, and there was Rush. So that was sort of a structural advantage in this uh, uh, ratings, as it were, contest. But the other was, you know, he was really, at the time when he started, he was really sui generis. There wasn't anyone quite doing the kind of right-wing railing, which he did very creatively, other than Rush. And, you know, Tucker was simply the worst of a large flock. A. B, there are a hell of a lot more, you know, options on television when Tucker's been on than there were uh, when uh, Rush was on on, uh, on radio, particularly if you just wanted to, you know, get something about politics that was all over the place. And social media provided another way to go down, you know, into the wormholes and the rat holes uh, that Tucker did. So there, there, were, there were alternatives. Uh, to Carlson, though he was a clear and present danger, just as Limbo was to American democracy. But uh, at his height, Rush was didn't have many competitors for for clear and present danger, whereas uh, uh, Carlson did. And if we want to look into a little bit more of the history of right wing media, Father Coglin, the radio priest who was the anti Semitic racist opponent of the New Deal. I think he had a much bigger audience in the 30s than Rush Limbaugh had. I saw something like 25 or 30% of all Americans had listened to Father Coughlin in the 30s, at least according to Rachel Maddow. So it seems like there's been a steady deterioration in the, in the audience for right-wing talkers if we go Father Coughlin, Rush Limbaugh, Tucker Carlson. Well, yeah, but again, I think as with Rush, the uh, part of that is the absence of alternatives. I mean, if you look at the early radio ratings of a show like Amos and Andy or Jack Benny, uh, they got a much higher percentage uh, than, than anything following. Um, in Jack Benny's case, it was, it was actually a great show. It was much better than his TV show because it was often just went off into bursts of comic surrealism and meta comedy. But I mean, what else was there to do? You know, in those days, you went to the movies or you turned on the radio, and uh, there were a lot fewer choices then. Uh, and yeah, Coughlin was, well, Coughlin started out as a supporter of the New Deal. So he already brought you know, kind of a heterodox audience when he began to move to the right. But also, in, in all three cases, there's a large audience for nativist, racist, horse on the uh, on the media. 
I'm afraid we're going to have to beep that line, but thank you for expressing yourself oh, so vividly. Oh, okay, okay. just so as long okay. as the, 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 the listener can use, use his or her imagination. I think they'll be able to do that. Of course, the big news this week has been Joe Biden's announcement that he will run for re-election. No surprise there, but it is notable that his announcement video made clear what kind of campaign he's going to run and what his central themes uh, will be. What's the story there? Well, the central theme that came up in the initial video uh, showing a, a woman demonstrating outside the Supreme Court with a sign that read abortion is health care. And then Biden went into saying freedom. That's what this election is about. That's what my uh, term as president has been about. That's what I'll be fighting for. So in one sense, that is intended to be universally understood euphemism for uh, the right to an abortion, which has been, you know, these uh, far and away, uh, the most effective message the Democrats have gifted to them by the uh, right wing Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, when you have something as successful as that, you don't fool with it. So it's it's that, but it, 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 it's several things. It's It's basically arguing, you know, Big business and its Republican champions claim that it's not given enough freedom. Biden saying, well, there's a freedom to exploit, which the Republicans back. And there's a freedom <clears throat> over bodily autonomy, which uh, which we support. Uh, uh, the freedom to preserve your health and uh, your the, the plan that you've made for your life. So in, in a sense, you know, the word freedom has been a, a word that has variously been invoked by both the left and the right, meaning different things uh, throughout the long course of American history. And, and Biden is reappropriating it uh, for his campaign, and I think very sensibly and rightly so. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in California regular feature of this broadcast. Last week, the LA public school teachers won a new contract, uh, this time without a protracted strike. Uh, how good is this contract? Well, it's pretty good. It gives them a 21% raise over the duration of the contract and meets some of their other sort of broader community-oriented demands as well. But as to going out on a strike, in a sense, they already did that and showed the level of disruption that it would cause because the non-teaching employees of uh, the LA Unified School District went out on a three-day strike several weeks ago with which the teachers expressed solidarity by staying away, not crossing the picket lines, and in fact, joining the picket lines. And that was sort of a nightmare for uh, the school administration, which certainly didn't want to repeat it. So in, in essence, the teachers kind of struck without striking themselves and uh, came out uh, you know, very well as, uh, as, as a result of that earlier action. Yeah, this 21% wage increase raises the average teacher salary in the LA public schools to $106,000. 3% of it is retroactive to July 1st of last year. 4% is more is retroactive to January 1st of this year. And then the rest is phased in over the next uh, two years. And this package also calls for additional pay uh, for hard to staff job in, jobs, including an additional $20,000 raise for nurses. 
and 3,000 more for school psychologists, social workers, attendance counselors, and other special services providers, all of whom are represented by the UTLA, the, the teachers union. Making it retroactive is particularly sweet for those teachers. It is indeed. I should add that the job of attendance counselor back in my day was basically filled by my parents. Uh, <laughs> they were paid nothing for this job. That's right. Well, this is exploiting housework, which is another long established American uh, tradition. Of course, of course, uh, no, but they the, didn't they didn't have a union. Given my parents' politics, you would almost expect that they would have. But anyway, uh, <laughs> okay. it, it is by any uh, stretch of the imagination uh, a very good contract. The union strategy has included organizing parents and families over the last couple of years to build community support for the teachers. And the parents' number one issue has been smaller class size. Of course, the teachers want that too. The new contract does have reductions in class size, but not really a, much. Two students per class fewer over the life of the contract with special reductions to the district's 100 most fragile schools, their term, uh, using calculation based on low student achievement and, and other factors. For the talks, I read fascinating footnote here, the union expanded its bargaining team to 75 participants. So the bargaining sessions were held in, a, in the auditorium of the, of the teacher's downtown uh, office building. This is not the way union negotiations used to be conducted. Well, this kind of is the latest turn and twist in, a develop, in two developing trends. One trend is having a larger bargaining committee and the uh, hotel workers union, Unite Here, has been doing this for for quite some time, and it, also it's, it's, I, let me also add the nurses union has has been doing this too. Yeah, and and this is this is uh, I think an element of the, both the appearance and the reality of of greater union democracy, and uh, having more rank and file buy in, not just to be presented with the contract as a fait accompli, but actually having uh, more input into what the contract says. The second trend is uh, what's been called bargaining for the common good, an alliance, in this case of teachers with parents and others in the, co the communities that they serve. And this began in Chicago in 2012, when the union contract was up at a time when the then mayor of Chicago, uh, Rahm Emanuel, wanted to close 50 inner city schools. And the union made common cause with parents whose kids went to those schools, and uh, what they were bargaining for and what they got was not only the usual, you know, um, wage and benefit uh, add-ons, add but the uh, an agreement uh, to close far fewer of those schools. And so, the, you know, what began with the, the teacher local in Chicago has expanded not only to the teacher local in L.A., but to a lot of public sector unions and, you know, private sector unions. I know a number of private sector unions are trying to figure out how they can apply it to their own causes. There's one other interesting footnote to the LA teachers union negotiations. There's the superintendent of schools is, in, is a key figure here, but then there's the school board president who in Los Angeles is Jackie Goldberg. Remind us who Jackie Goldberg is. Jackie Goldberg is a veteran uh, of the free speech movement in Berkeley in 1964, where she was an undergrad. 
a longtime teacher in uh, LA uh, inner city schools, then elected as the really left dissident to the uh, LA school board decades ago, and then went on to the state legislature where she was a, uh, a forceful proponent of really progressive policy, and now she's returned to the school board. I'm reminded of situations uh, like when the LA Weekly unionized and I was management. Or, you know, when you have management who's on the side of unions, <laughs> well, that makes things a little easier for unions. So we, uh, that, I think that's a safe to say that's a general rule. I heard this week about another strike at Whittier College in Orange County, a small private school where Nixon is their most famous uh, graduate. This is a strike by food service workers, members of Unite Here Local 11. This strike had widespread support among students who boycotted the cafeteria, which, of course, was staffed by scabs during the strike. Students uh, ate instead at food trucks, and they claimed 80% support among students to boycott the cafeteria. Unite Here just yesterday announced a victory, a wage increase from $16 an hour to $25 an hour. That's more than a 50% pay increase. Uh, Unite Here represents food service workers at other college campuses. Getting a 50% pay increase after a three-week strike, that's pretty good. Uh, it's pretty good. And uh, I remember back when I was at the LA Weekly in the late 1990s, uh, they had a similar situation at USC. The administration there was was really taking a very hard-ass role. No, we're not going to uh, go along with this. There were sympathetic hunger strikes, rolling hunger strikes among public officials in Los Angeles. And what finally compelled the administration to submit was the brilliant uh, realization by a very brilliant activist, Madeline Janis, who at the time head of the LA Alliance for a New Economy, that USC was up for renewal of some permitting zoning thing with the city. And the city council uh, was withholding that until they, uh, you know, recognized the union and uh, uh, agreed to terms. So the Unite Here Local 11 is by now an old hand at this, and I'm glad to see they're still coming out on top. In other labor organizing news, Amazon drivers in Palmdale, north of L.A., are joining the Teamsters. These uh, drivers work for a subcontractor, uh, small businesses that rent vans, hire drivers, and bring packages to, you know, my house and your house. The Teamsters now have an Amazon division director uh, here in Southern California and are planning to or try to organize and win contracts for uh, Amazon drivers all over the place. This is 84 drivers in Palmdale have reached a tentative agreement with their employer, which has the wonderful name Battle-Tested Strategies. This is going to be voted on in the coming weeks, includes pay increases and a grievance procedure. We don't know the details yet. Organizing the sub the employees of the subcontractors is a big challenge, but the Teamsters uh, are uh, know what they're up against. I think. Well, they do, and Randy Corgan has been in charge of the Teamsters Amazon uh, division for quite some time. There were actually relatively few Teamster national staff were kept on uh, once the new administration came in, but Randy was was kept on. I would think that this may be the only way that they can, you know, begin to carve a little niche out of uh, 
uh, out of Amazon by going after the subcontractors because Amazon itself is adamantly against this. And in fact, uh, the LA Times story reporting on this uh, reporting that Amazon might cut this company loose rather than uh, unionize employees, even if they were unionized only with a uh, somewhat reminiscent of Walmart's response when one group of butchers in one Walmart in Texas voted to unionize. Walmart's response was to close the meat departments throughout Texas and uh, six surrounding states. So uh, I wouldn't put put it past Amazon to do something analogous in terms of dealing with its its many subcontractors. But I do think this is probably the only way for right now that the unionization, even with semi-employees of Amazon, can uh, proceed. So we have the Teamsters setting out to organize the Amazon drivers. Then we have the new Amazon Workers Union, which did win that one election on Staten Island, but has had no progress since then. Uh, The Teamsters are old hands at this. The Amazon Workers Union is brand new. Uh, What's your assessment of their chances, the chances of each of making progress? Well, the major uh, task before the Teamsters right now is uh, their bargaining with uh, UPS, United Parcel Service, where they have uh, just over 350,000 members who work for UPS. And if they go on strike, which they may well do, that would be the largest strike in, you know, maybe since U.S. Steel got struck in 1959. As Sean O'Brien, the new president of the Teamsters, has said, their goal is to come out uh, with such a good contract that uh, the drivers at uh, for FedEx and Amazon and all the delivery services will rise up and say, hey, why don't we uh, make that kind of money? Uh, so that, in essence, I think, is the short-term macro strategy, uh, strategy of, uh, by example, showing how, how much better uh, a, a union job is that uh, the Teamsters are working at Amazon. And, uh, you know, given the state of labor law, you have to say that the company still has the advantage almost no matter what. All the more so uh, with the warehouse workers who uh, just it, it, it's a, a very difficult situation. The fact that there are hundreds and hundreds of, of Amazon warehouses means that even if you get a contract in uh, in one, and they've won an election in one, but they certainly don't have a contract yet, that doesn't necessarily affect the uh, whatever it is, 900, 1200, or however many other warehouses Amazon has. And so they've got a real steep climb ahead of them. Harold Meyerson with news of the class struggle. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Up the workers. Yes. Good to be here, John. <laughs> It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. The news from Haiti is not good. Seems like it never is. But for the latest, we turn to Amy Willens. She's written about the Middle East, California, and the Trump family, but she's best known for her work on Haiti, most recently the award-winning book Farewell Fred Voodoo. 
She's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem bureau chief for The New Yorker, and she's a 2020 Guggenheim Fellow. She teaches in the literary journalism program at UC Irvine. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. We always start by reminding our listeners why we care about Haiti, not just because it's a desperately poor country, but because Haiti had the first slave revolution in the 1790s, the largest slave uprising since Spartacus, inspired by the French Revolution, and it established the world's first black republic. It's been punished by France and the United States pretty much ever since, and Haiti, of course, is still in crisis. What's the current situation in the capital, Port-au-Prince? Right now, it's extremely tense. A couple of days ago, um, the people in a sort of downtown uh, neighborhood that goes from middle class to quite poor came out of their houses in the poorer neighborhoods and fought back against gangsters who had come in to take over that part of the, the area. And they killed, I think it was nine members of the gang. It's a very powerful gang. So this morning, a busload of armed men in civilian clothes was coming down uh, deeper into the neighborhood, presumably to avenge their slain members. Of, they bus jacked the bus. They got on the bus with all their arms and they came into the neighborhood and the police stopped them. Two armed policemen stopped them and they scrambled out of the bus, I guess. And the population knew that they were coming somehow. And the population proceeded to attack them and disarm them somehow and killed them all. 13 people, presumably all members of this gang, but who knows? And then they burned the bodies. There's a stunning video on WhatsApp. I don't know what's out on the American media, if anything. The videos show the population chasing these guys. Then it, they show the men on the ground. They seem to all be dead. Then you see a little man walking toward this pile of bodies with a, a jerry can of gasoline and tires are being thrown on top of the bodies. And then they light it on fire. And then you see they're not all positively dead. There's still some of them are burned a lot. Meanwhile, you can see the cops, two cops with AR-15s standing, watching the proceedings. But the cops are really under attack from the gangs too. So they're not happy. And there is a rumor, a very strong rumor going around now that a, a government drone, which has never been heard of before in Haiti. So I'm a little reluctant to spread this rumor, but that a government drone has been watching the gang's movements and that they alerted the population to the Iran. Wow. The government using the people against the gangs because the government is so unable to deal with this. The AP reported that this the leader of this gang is accused of helping kidnap 17 U.S. missionaries in October 2021, and it's also linked to this assassination of Moise. President Moise, that's still a, an open question who killed him. So you can link uh, the guy who leads this, his name is Dijalam Innocent, which means vital man, innocent. It's just his name, but I'm just translating. He runs a gang, I believe it's called Timakak, which means little monkey, but it's kind of creepy at the same time. And they're the ones who've been creating havoc. And the police actually did sort of push them out of a richer neighborhood farther up the mountain that backs Port-au-Prince uh, recently. So this is all part of a kind of messian war between this big gang and the police of Haiti. The police are not winning. 
by the way. Police are not winning. And your article for thenation.com reports on an increasing wave of kidnappings for ransom. Yes. We are not sure why this is. There, there can be many reasons for this, but there's one thing that looms sort of large in my mind, which is that the Canadians, and to a much lesser extent, the American governments, have um, sanctioned a number of really the biggest machers in Haiti, the, the richest men. Uh, in Haiti, and then a couple of smaller ones, also Vidal Minosant, I believe, and uh, another gang leader of a, of a very large gang. And so they maybe are not getting the kind of money coming into them, the gangs, that they are used to, because those are the guys who've been running the gangs. Yeah, let, let me ask you a little more about those. You say these gangs are not just gangs of the American uh, street variety. There are rich businessmen behind them? Yes, they are also uh, the biggest businessmen of Haiti. They can get things into the country that other people can't get into the country, i.e. arms and ammunition. And those big businessmen, one of them has his own port that he constructed. We don't know why, but probably to avoid having to pay uh, taxes to the Haitian government at the port. So they run these gangs to have control over turf and various products and transportation and politics. There are a lot of factions involved. And I think that the so the kidnappings for ransom are lower level uh, ways of funding these gangs. This brings us to the role of the United States and President Joe Biden. What is President Joe Biden's policy in Haiti? My theory is it's the policy of no policy because he doesn't want to have a policy because he doesn't want to be responsible for whatever the heck might happen in Haiti. And the Americans really, it's like the little firework in their hands every time they go near it. Things happen in Haiti that they don't expect because they don't know the country very well because the people they've been dealing with all these years are the big businessmen that just recently bothered to sanction some of them. So they're sort of complicit in the whole problem. Plus, they've been supporting this ineffective, really, it should be brought up before the court at The Hague, de facto prime minister, no constitutionality to his existence in that role. We are speaking of Ariel Henry. Who has proceeded to finish off the work of his predecessor, Jovenel Moise, the president who was assassinated in the summer of 2021, of dismantling the entire Haitian government. 13 people killed on the street, and he doesn't go on the radio and say, this is bad, or this is great, thank you, population, for killing the criminals. Now I don't have to put them in our jails and bring them before our non-existent courts. I'm sure that pretty much everybody in Haiti would rather be in the United States. And I understand there's a new American process to get Haitians permission to enter. What What's the story here? For some reason, it's called a parole process, as though they all were in prison, which they are effectively. It's made it much easier for Haitians. You'll like the list. Haitians, Cubans, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans to get out of their country. What it does is allow Haitians who have someone in the United States to back them to get out. Now, any Haitian who has someone in the United States to back them is already a Haitian who would be useful to have in Haiti when and if Haiti can get control of the situation. So once they all leave, it's like a brain drain. It's like encouraging a brain drain. I'm not against it because I want every individual Haitian to live. But it is a little bit of a policy of no policy. 
Haitians are very excited. There have been riots in front of the immigration building in Port-au-Prince for people to get passports. You have to have a passport already before you can get okay from the State Department. And I understand that the official goal of Ariel Henry and the United States is to hold democratic elections in Haiti within the year. This is the sort of thing the Americans love, you know, elections show a country is democratic. But is this really a good idea, given what you've told us about the situation in the streets? Of course, it's not a good idea. It's impossible. And uh, the Haitians have realized that the elections the Americans have been sponsoring for the past 10 years, 13 years since the earthquake, have not exactly been the most democratic elections. They've been fiddled and, you know, the numbers jiggled and Hillary Clinton putting her finger on the electoral scale. And um, and it's given us this just horrible succession of people down to the grave with Moise and then Ariel Henry, who's kind of below the grave. He barely exists to allow Haiti to go into this morass of, of chaos. For the last couple of years, when we check in with you, you've told us about a broad alliance of democratic forces called the Montana Group. And this is not because they meet in the big sky country, I understand. Does the Montana Group still exist, given all of the kidnappings and people going into exile? And what, what, what are the chances now that their plan might help? Well, they still exist. I'm sure many of them have been kidnapped and come out of kidnapping or not, but they still exist. And it is a, a broad organization. It sort of exists beyond the usual horrendous class difficulties of Haiti um, and color difficulties in Haiti. But, you know, it's got its elite wing and it's got its grassroots wing. And it's the Americans have been understandably wary of it because it's very democratic, <laughs> has too many moving parts and the Americans have not felt comfortable with it. So they haven't put their finger. Haitians hate it when I talk like this, by the way. But the Americans are so crucial to what is happening in Haiti, what has happened and what will happen. And it's not just the Americans. It's the whole core group, which is includes the Dominican Republic, but it's largely France, Canada, the U.S. You would say that they're the traditional enemies of Haiti, but they think of themselves as the traditional friends of Haiti, the U.N., and they need to come down on one side or another. They need to find a way out of this. They keep trying to push Henri and Montana together, but Henri doesn't really want that because the people he deals with don't want that because they don't want to lose the power that they have because he's a vacuum, because he's an empty cipher. They have power. You spoke with the former U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti, Daniel Foote, who resigned in protest against U.S. policies in September 2021. What did he tell you? Dan thought it would matter if the U.S. Special Envoy resigned publicly in protest against U.S. policy. Little did he know Haiti. <laughs> Little did he know the U.S. and Haiti. I mean, he does. He knows everything. He said that um, the U.S. is holding 12 million Haitians hostage in Haiti today under Ariel Henry. We've talked about the Americans. I understand that Russia's foreign ministry recently declared that Russia was ready to help the Haitians restore stability, and Russia was happy to train personnel. What, what's this about? Russians are so democratically minded. <laughs> you know, it feels very cynical. Look at the U.S. They grew up so badly with their little neighbor Haiti to the south, they kicked us out of Cuba. What the heck? 
and <laughs> we can help them. We can help the Haitians get away from these gangs by sending in the Wagner, as I think of them, the Wagner mercenaries. You know, I never heard of the Wagner mercenaries until about two weeks ago. They're mercenaries who uh, have been operating in Ukraine on behalf of the Russians and who most famously, and this is why John heard of them, some guy they captured with a hammer. That's what we need in Haiti, don't you think, Haitians? But, you know, there's a growing feeling of in Haiti <laughs> that's always there under the surface of like, don't give these uh, anti-democratic criminals a trial of five years in prison and then, you know, appeal. No, just execute them uh, extra constitutionally on the street, extrajudicially on the street. There is that growing feeling because that's the problem is so out of hand. I imagine that the Russians offering to come to Haiti to help would get the Americans' attention. I don't think so. First of all, I don't think the Americans really think it's going to happen. As far as I can see, there was no response from the Americans. And the Americans are there in Haiti right now. There's no question about it. If you have a drone in the hands of the Haitian government, the Americans taught them how to use it and gave it to them, or the Canadians, or the French, or the UN. Someone did that. There's been certainly some advances in strategizing about moving gangs out of various places. And I believe that's also on teams of advisors, that kind of thing. But there's been no public display of support for anyone by the U.S. So do you see any hopeful signs for the near or distant future of Haiti? Well, I hate to say hopeful when it includes murder of people my son's age in the street and the burning of their corpses. But I think it's a hopeful sign. I hate to say it. I mean, I look at them, I see a, a young man running with fire on his bank and back, and I think my son, that could be my son. Mm. You don't know how they got to be thought of as a gang member or are, why they are a gang member. You have to keep your humanism alive here. But I still think it's good that the population is saying, no, you can't do this to us, and putting their lives on the line really, in the face of these people. But I don't know how far that can go, because if you're a person with a machete, you might die in this in this confrontation. And unless you have another 60 people with machetes, you won't win. And even if you have another 60 people with machetes, some of you are going to die before you get their guns loaded. So I don't know how, how desperate the Haitian people really are. But they in, in the nation, you talked about the UN's recent appointment of a new independent human rights expert in Haiti, William O'Neill. What was that about? Uh, Bill O'Neill has been on the Haiti scene for a really long time. He uh, is a human rights expert. He actually knows something about Haiti. I'm, I think I think little things are happening in Washington that may, might matter. I think this is a really important appointment, I hope it is. And so maybe that's the Biden administration trying to sort of sub rosa make a difference without committing itself to anything. And uh, I have a lot of hope from Bill because um, previous people there have not been very good. And then you mentioned another actor on the scene named Jonathan Powell. What's that about? So Jonathan Powell worked with Tony Blair for a long time uh, when Tony Blair was at 10 Downing Street. And then uh, he's become a sort of 
global maestro of conflict resolution. And he runs a, a consulting firm that does this. And he somehow, maybe at the suggestion of the State Department, was called in as like a doctor of conflict resolution for on the Haitian scene recently. And he put some people together to talk to each other to try to work things out. But apparently Haiti has managed to also resist Jonathan Powell's medications and mediation. Seems like it's only worse. And I believe that the gangs and their masterminds don't want this conflict resolved, no matter the expense. Amy Willens. She wrote about Haiti for thenation.com, where her piece is titled, Soon There Will Be No One Left to Kidnap. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Anatole Levin spent three weeks in Ukraine recently. He's back now with his report. He's a former war correspondent and director of the Quincy Institute's Eurasia program. He's the author of the book, Ukraine and Russia. His writing has appeared in Jacobin, The Financial Times, The American Prospect, and The Nation. We reached him today in England. Anatole Levin, welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back. Well, where in Ukraine did you go and how much of the war did you see? Uh, I went uh, to Kiev, to the um, towns north of Kiev, uh, Bucha, Irpin, Borodyanko, which were where the fighting was and which were partly occupied by Russia at the start of the war 13 months ago. I went to the city of Dnipro in central Ukraine and to Zaporizhia in southern Ukraine. Most of Zaporizhia province is occupied by the Russians, but the city is still in Ukrainian hands. The front line runs about 20 miles to the south. And um, there I had an accident, which was nothing to do with the war. Uh, I just fell over. Um, but I spent a week in hospital in Zaporizhia. Uh, so I was there for 10 days altogether. And that gave me a chance actually to observe the progress of the Russian air campaign uh, against one Ukrainian city. Tell so, us about what you saw from that perspective. The air campaign uh, against uh, most of Ukraine uh, has been far less effective and far less destructive than I think is generally perceived uh, in the West. Now that of course is not true of uh, places like Bakhmut or Mariupol, uh, where there has been heavy fighting on the ground, but those cities were destroyed in, in ground fighting with artillery bombardments uh, over you know, weeks or months. But quite frankly, I mean, in Kiev uh, and Dnipro, and even to, to some extent in Zaporizhia, uh, if you were an unwary visitor who wasn't you know, especially looking out for, for damage, it would be possible to visit them and not know <laughs> that a war was going on. That's partly because there have been far fewer Russian missile attacks. It's not, you know, that the Western media um, falsifies anything exactly. It's just that, well, I used to be a journalist myself. You, you concentrate on where something has happened. But it's quite striking, for example, that in these cities, you know, if you take a picture of a, a destroyed building, you don't take a picture of all the buildings around it, which are, in fact, 
undamaged. And so there is a, an impression of much greater damage. Um, but it's also that, which could change, by the way, if, if it's true, as the leaks from the Pentagon uh, suggested that the Ukrainians are running out of anti-aircraft missiles. But uh, in recent months, the Ukrainians have been very effective at shooting down Russian missiles. Uh, but also the Russian missiles have been extremely inaccurate. And uh, I have described, you know, how you can clearly see what the Russians were aiming at. Um, and you can see that they missed and hit something else instead. Mm -hmm. That also makes it quite difficult to say often, you, you know, when the Russians have actually deliberately bombarded purely civilian targets, blocks of flats and so forth. And um, when it is what the United States in such circumstances would call collateral damage. In other words, they were aiming at, uh, from their point of view, at least a legitimate target. Uh, which of course for the United States has always included civilian infrastructure, bridges, power stations, and so forth. Um, and when they missed and hit something else, uh, or in one case I saw seemingly the Russian missile was brought down by a, a Ukrainian air defense missile. That's one thing. Um, secondly, uh, up to now, the uh, effect of the Russian bombardment on the Ukrainian economy has been limited. Um, the Ukrainians have also, with our help, become very good at repairing uh, damaged electricity infrastructure, which is mostly what the Russians have been aiming at. And uh, the population is certainly not intimidated. In fact, I mean, if one remembers the Second World War, you know, when populations stood up to infinitely higher levels of bombardment. I mean, frankly, all the Russian bombardment has done is to infuriate people uh, and, of course, contribute in the Russian-speaking areas. And Dnipro and still more Zaporizhia have traditionally been Russian-speaking. And at least until 2014, um, large majorities regularly voted for pro-Russian candidates. Uh, that has now vanished. I mean, I found a good many people who, off the record, uh, expressed hopes that the war would end and doubts about complete Ukrainian victory. I, I did not find a single, not one person who had any sympathy for Putin, for the Russian government, for the Russian invasion, for the Russian armed forces. And, you know, I mean, that is the effect of being bombarded for a year, even if the bombardment was relatively ineffective. And and what is li life like for uh, ordinary people, say, in Kiev? Uh, life continues pretty much as normal. Uh, food prices are high. I mean, I had a lot of people complaining uh, about that, but there's no lack of food. Um, you know, the shops are full, I mean, and the shops for ordinary people. Public transport works. Um, Everybody ignores the air raid sirens. Um, I went to the ballet in the evening. It was packed. I wow. lost a couple of tickets. And I have to say, uh, which I think could play a, a part in politics in future, um, the wealthy of Kiev are still very much living the high life. Very, very, very expensive restaurants, um, which are still very you know, heavily frequented. You know, I visited one luxury food store um, with uh, 106, I think, uh, different kinds of champagne and Prosecco, wow. and the most expensive bottle for $600. Wow. That doesn't go down very well, you can imagine, with the uh, the returning veterans uh, from the army. And I think that could be a, a you know, resentment of the Kiev elites. 
We're told that the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian military remains high. I wonder if you saw any signs of war weariness among the civilians, any young men avoiding military service or concern about that, any cynicism about the war and the leadership? Not openly talking to me. I mean, uh, among some journalists, yes, but I mean, I have to say that, that there is a definite mood of fear of speaking your mind openly on these subjects, unless you agree unconditionally with the government line. Uh, certainly the wounded soldiers I talked to went you know, out of their way to stress high morale and determination to fight to the end. Uh, but on the other hand, I did hear in Kiev that there, uh, there are sites on the, um, the, the online chat service Telegram where you know it's a bit like the um services the chat services on roads where you can hear about police uh you know speed checks where young men tip each other off about where uh the military authorities are conducting raids to round up young men of military age uh and tip each other off so that they can avoid those areas and escape which of course argues that um as as we all know, enthusiasm for a war is one thing. Enthusiasm to fight in a war yourself can be a very different thing. Yes. So I would say that a, a willingness to to serve is by no means unanimous, though uh, undoubtedly there there is still a, a a great determination to fight on among a majority of Ukrainians. The New York Times on Tuesday published a big front page report on Ukraine's plans for a counteroffensive this spring. According to the Times, everything hinges on this counteroffensive. Ukraine hopes to break through Russian defenses and create a widespread collapse in Russia's army. Russia, of course, has more planes, more tanks, more artillery, more soldiers. Ukraine has a lot of new equipment now from the United States and Europe, newly trained troops. Its soldiers, of course, are more motivated, a lot more motivated. Ukraine has surprised everyone in the past with their military success. What do you think are the chances of them succeeding with the spring counteroffensive? I must say, I've become very cautious about predicting what happens on the battlefield because, you know, we've all been, including me, I have to say, proved wrong again and again. Uh, and the Ukrainians, yes, I mean, have surprised us. Uh, so um, I think we we have to wait and and, and see. Uh, but undoubtedly, I mean, this this offensive will be very important because uh, if the Ukrainians break through, then it could have major political re uh, repercussions in Russia. But you will then have, I think, a, a real clash in the West between hardliners who say, now go on for complete victory, and others in Europe, but also, you know, by all accounts within the Biden administration, who will say, no, now, you know, Ukraine has recaptured most of what it's lost since last year. Now the time has come to stop and negotiate. And that's also, of course, because um, of this fear, which I think is well based, that uh, if Ukraine goes on and tries to um, recapture Crimea, the Russians probably will escalate radically. Not straight to nuclear war, but, um, you know, would begin a ladder of escalation that could well end in nuclear war. On the other hand, if the Ukrainian offensive fails, then the Times article you cited says this, that there will undoubtedly be voices in Europe and also 
uh, in the United States who will say, this can't go on forever. Uh, are we going to back the Ukrainians to attack and attack? There will also, I think, be some military analysts who will say, by letting the Ukrainians wear themselves out in this way, we are risking a much bigger defeat for them in future. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians fail completely and the Russians counterattack, then um, you will undoubtedly have voices, you know, including from Eastern Europe, who will say, oh, now you know, we must save the Ukrainians by intervening directly. So there are opportunities for peace, or at least for a ceasefire, but there are also some you know, immense potential dangers down the road. Now, if Ukraine does succeed with its counteroffensive, does that mean that Vladimir Putin will sue for peace, will come to the negotiating table seeking a ceasefire or uh, a compromise? Putin certainly knows this is coming and is preparing for it. What do we know about his thinking at this point? Well, we know very little. What we can say for sure uh, is that neither Putin nor any conceivable Russian regime, and by that, to judge by his previous statements, I would include Alexei Navalny, should he, in an extremely unlikely scenario, become president. None of them will give up Crimea. They would fight to the end to keep Crimea. And it would be, all, I would say, very nearly impossible to give up the eastern Donbass, unless the Ukrainians have already conquered it. So what Russia might be brought to accept would be a ceasefire that froze the existing front lines achieved by a Ukrainian counteroffensive, or you know possibly uh, the existing front lines if a counteroffensive fails. But of course, the Ukrainian government and um, well, and now you know the, the latest um, proposed motion of the. Uh, US uh, Congress, if you've been following this, uh, has called for total uh, Russian withdrawal from all the territory that Russia has uh, occupied or, or backed since 2014. In other words, Russia must leave Crimea and the Donbass. Well, and the Ukrainian government has uh, repeatedly said that that is non-negotiable. Uh, although Sometimes Ukrainian officials have hinted that in the end it, it may have to be negotiable. Certainly, a good many ordinary Ukrainians think it will have to be negotiated. Just to review a little of the history of Crimea, was part of Russia transferred from Russia to Ukraine in 1954 by Khrushchev, just as a decree. For 60 years then, it was part of Ukraine. Since 2014, Russia has occupied Crimea. That's nine years. A lot of ethnic Russians live there. Can you imagine a ceasefire, an end to the fighting with Crimea part of Ukraine again? No. I, I can, I suppose, just about imagine a total collapse of the Russian army. It's not at all likely, but, you know, we've seen that. In the past, many people make parallels um, with the First World War, and in the First World War, uh, in the end, every army, except the British, at one stage or another collapsed, including, of course, the Russian. So it is, I suppose, imaginable that that that, that could, could happen. But uh, I, I think that at that point, I mean, so many Russians have said to me, 
one Russian think tank guy who was always in, in previously, uh, you know, considered one of the pro-Westerners, has said that look, America will you would certainly use nuclear weapons to defend Hawaii and Pearl Harbor, and in the very last resort, we should be willing to use nuclear weapons to defend Crimea and Sevastopol. A lot of people don't know about the American Congress's recent stand on this. Tell us a little more about that and its uh, implications. Well, it isn't uh, as yet uh, a stand as such. I mean, it hasn't hasn't been voted in. But there is a resolution before Congress which would uh, essentially demand that the United States uh, commit itself to the existing Ukrainian government line, that all Ukrainian territory lost since 2014, including Crimea and Eastern Donbass, must go back to Ukraine, and that this is non-negotiable. In other words, that America must commit itself to total victory over Russia. Well, I mean, that means either war without end, I mean, literally war with no conceivable end in sight, uh, or a truly, truly serious risk uh, of nuclear war. And, of course, if it were seriously adopted by a US government, it would imply that the US should commit its own armed forces to pursue this end, since it's probably only through that that the Ukrainians could actually achieve this. Uh, but, uh, of course, this is also, um, quite apart from it being uh, you know, extremely bad in this particular case, uh, th this is a truly terrible example of Congress having absolutely no responsibility for the results, of course, of its of its votes, trying to tie an administration's hand in ways that makes serious diplomacy impossible. And of course, if this does lead to disaster, well, I mean, if it leads to complete disaster, um, we won't any of us need to worry about it because we'll all be dead. But even if it leads to more limited disaster, of course, all the people in Congress who have voted for this will act as if the resulting disaster had nothing to do with them. And I'm very sure that all the Republicans who vote for it will, of course, blame the entire disaster on the Biden administration, because that's what Congress does. It is a terrible way to run a railroad. Anatole Lieben, you can read his article, The Rise and Role of Ukrainian Ethnic Nationalism, at thenation.com. Anatole, thanks for talking with us today. It's a pleasure, John. Thank you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.